Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. Hello, listeners. It's Odai here, and... This is going to be the Black History Month episode of Audible Autism. I'll be going solo for this one, and I thought for this episode I would do something different. I would do a biography episode about somebody quite special. I wanted to do an episode where I talked about an individual who, in his heyday, was considered a giant and a trailblazer, but unfortunately over time became forgotten about due to a number of different factors. Very well respected, very well beloved by the people of his time and of his era. I introduce you to political activist, orator, critic, educator, lecturer, autodidact, and organizer, one-time member of the Socialist Party and the IWW, and arguably the founder of the New Negro Movement, I'd like to introduce you to Hubert Harrison. So, there are a few reasons as to why Harrison maybe has become forgotten to time. Um, One of those reasons is because he was very, very critical, very directly critical and radical in his views, not just in regards to critiquing capitalism, but also the violence of his era, in that he urged black people to defend themselves in the turmoil of racist violence and also engage in critical thinking and reading. Harrison was a socialist who supported racial and women's equality as well as birth control. He died at a much younger age compared to the well-known icons of his era, especially Marcus Garvey, whose stories intertwined with Harrison's. And it's probably because in some ways you could argue he was more radical compared to some of those subjects, especially in terms of class and religion. And yet, despite dying young, he wasn't turned into a martyr like, say, Martin Luther King or Fred Hampton, for instance. Harrison served as Jeffrey Perry, whose two-volume biography on Harrison informs this episode, as a link between the class radicals, who in turn turned into the civil rights movement, which would be defined by people like um, Martin Luther King, and the race radicals, who would later be defined by people like Malcolm X. And it was through his writings and his grassroots efforts that he displayed a radicalism that was very wide-ranging, thorough, and scientific in its perspective. He was the founder of the organization, the Liberty League, which greatly differed from the NAACP and Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute in that it didn't depend on white donations. He wanted it to be a strictly black governed thing. And despite working with many organizations and played several important roles within them, He didn't have any sort of long-term relationship with them. And so he didn't exactly get the recognition and support that would come with such a tie to them. 
as he explained, and this is something I greatly relate to, in a 1922 letter, I haven't any group. I always go alone and find this much more productive of internal peace than the contrary process. And of course, I have no chieftains, well-meaning or otherwise. So, let me introduce you to Mr. Harrison. Born on the 27th of April, 1883, died on the 17th of December, 1927. He grew up in St. Croix, so colloquially he'd be called a Crucian, in what was then called the Danish West Indies and now the Virgin Islands. He was the child of two working parents. His mother was an unmarried Barbadian woman, who, you know, they would be referred to as Bayesian, and a father of Crucian descent who was formerly a slave, but um, was an absent parent. He grew up working as a servant, and he, it was through that and experiencing the poverty that he had, he developed a very deep and empathetic connection with the poor of the country. He also found himself deeply in tune with his African roots. And on recollection, he recognized the communal aspect under the Danish colonial oppression had connections linking back to Ghana, which was then the Gold Coast and the southern eastern limits of Nigeria. Now, St. Croix is a very, very interesting island with its own particular history to the Caribbean. Three and a half decades before Harrison's birth, Crucians undertook two major direct action and struggles. One which was an enslaved rebellion to then slavery, and the other an armed rebellion, followed by a general strike for better working conditions. And... Crucian working people at the, referred to these two struggles as the first free and the second free. The first one happened on July the 3rd, 1848, in which several thousand slaves, reputedly led by the legendary liberator Budo, also known as John Gottlieb or Moses Gottlieb, staged a non-violent demonstration in Frederickstead, which was the island's second largest town demanding their freedom. This determined collective action forced the governor, Peter Carl Frederick von Stolten, to decree an end to slavery in the Danish West Indies. And this struggle, as one historian Neville Hall points out, was the second successful uprising after Haiti. Um, though some 17,000 people had won their freedom from slavery in 1848, the ensuing repressive act of the Labour Act of 1849 established year-long labour contracts, which involved five-day sunrise-to-sunset work weeks, prohibitions against refusal of work, including refusals by children, requirements to give notice before termination of work and fixed wages for free classes of workers of 5, 10 and 15 cents a day, the emancipation victory of the second three, and the subsequent labour laws led to many of the workers terminating their contracts and leaving the plantations, which resulted in a growing labour shortage and prompted a post-emancipation influx of immigrant labourers, some 5,000 between 1859 and 1870. And many of those immigrants were unemployed Barbadians who were lured by recruiting agents to arrive in great numbers in the 1860s. And then... 
later on were described as troublemakers by those people. By 1880, the census of the time would list 1,023 Barbadians, 329 women and 694 men on St. Croix. And 30 years after the emancipation victory, workers of the island chanting the watchword Our Side and inspired by rebel leader Queen Mary Thomas, who was a 30-year-old Antiguan immigrant and Canefield worker, Queen Agnes, Queen Mary and others, they conducted a week-long militant labour rebellion known as the Fireburn. It was the beginning of the second great labour struggle in the island. In 1878, the struggle opposed labour contracts, low wages, wage inequality, vagrancy laws and the lack of an upward mobility. During that struggle, the labourers expressed profound dissatisfaction with their conditions and foreign-born and native-born workers demonstrated a class solidarity. Immigrants played a very prominent role in the protest. 53 sugar plantations and 15 stock estates out of 79 estates on the island were severely damaged. At least 84 of the black labouring class people, and possibly as most as maybe as many as 250, were killed. However, as groups of plantation owners, managers, overseers known as the volunteers engaged in the various beatings and arrests and murders of these protesters, a year later, some get real gains were made in working conditions, which were consolidated through island-wide general strike that gained the workers' freedom of movement and the right to negotiate terms of their employment. These events and the general strike occurred only a few years before Harrison's birth. Harrison also grew up in a country where the concept of class and colour were interlinked. According to the 1917 census, the white population, who were of unmixed European descent, were only 4-5% to of the total population, and they made up the upper class of the country. The 80%, who were of African descent unmixed, primarily made up the working classes and were the labourers, and the buffer class middle classes of St. Croix were 13% who were primarily made up of those of a mixed background of European and African descent. Combination of the harsh economic conditions of the time, the death of his mother in 1889, as well as his own personal ambitions led him to make the decision to emigrate to America after his sister made the decision to do so. And when he arrived in Lower Manhattan in August of 1900, the contrast between that of St. Croix and New York was staggering. It wasn't just that he moved from a small agricultural island to one of the leading industrial centres in the entire world at the time, but the racial climate of the city was very, very violent and very toxic in a way that he hadn't experienced. There was a lack of elected black officials in New York at the time. Black families and migrant families especially were being forced to take up residence in cramped tenements with some of the meanest landlords within Manhattan. 
And on top of that, this was at a time when segregation through Jim Crow laws was the rule at the time. And there was a series of brutal, very brutal race riots, which were an example of white supremacy gone rampant throughout the city. He mainly stayed in temporary accommodation for the time. But by 1907, after going through these spaces, he settled in Harlem in Upper Manhattan on 7 West 134th Street, the most densely populated block in Harlem, and in due time would become the intellectual and social centre of the Harlem Renaissance. While he did that, he was... um, attending a all-white night school to feed his intellectual curiosity and was noted for that. That same year, he was able to obtain a union job as a post office clerk, which garnered him $600 a week. It was during this time he also started writing letters to the editor, which saw the first sparks of his uh, radicalization and intellectualism. See, at the time in America, there were a number of different options that black people could point to or go into that addressed what was considered the Negro question of the time. What is to be done with the three million or so African-Americans who were first or second generations after slavery what would be their role to play in this 19th century world. Booker T. Washington was advocating for accommodation. Booker T. Washington was saying that rather than jump the gun for equal rights, black people should garner trade skills and they should work hard to prove themselves that they should be recognized as citizens and to try and achieve that through, you know, learning a trade or getting an industrial education and business to gain prosperity. W.B. Du Bois was the opposite in that he was advocating for full political agitation and also the establishment of a talented tenth. Talented tenth was an idea that if 10% of the black populace who had received the classical education could come together, they would be able to guide black people to a better future. You also had Marcus Garvey, who with his United Negro Improvement Association and the Black Star Line was advocating for a form of black nationalism that linked African-American struggle to the struggles of Africa and in his mind believed that America was a white man's country and that black people were better served within Africa trying to help build up the powers of the continent. You also had the journalist and satirist George S. Schuyler who, if I ever do another episode of these, you'll be sure to hear one about him, who was completely sceptical of the idea of black leadership and believed that black people should both try to gain wealth through industrial skills and business and a classical education any way they could, 
and only decide to make a move on certain decisions after collective consideration. Harrison would have things to say about the first three at very different stages of time. And he would firstly run afoul of Booker T. Washington in 1910 when he wrote two letters to the New York Sun in which he expressed his sharp disapproval to comments made by Washington in England regarding the conditions of black people back home. At that point, due to patronage and because of loyalty to the Republican Party and a focus on building wealth and jobs, Booker T. Washington was the most powerful black man in America. And he received donations and support from very wealthy philanthropists like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, as well as receiving support from the likes of then-President Theodore Roosevelt. In his letter, The Appeal, Harrison made the statement that if Booker T. Washington or any other person is giving the impression abroad that the Negro problem in America is in process of satisfactory solution, he is giving an impression which is not true. Not only that, but Washington has been for years compelled to not tell the whole truth, but the part of it which certain powerful interests in America wish to appear is the whole truth. This kind of candid and very pointed critique defined much of Harrison's thoughts, who delivered the same kind of eyes open, challenging critique to other black leaders like Du Bois, as mentioned before, Chandler Rowan, as well as groups like the NAACP, the Socialist Party in the Urban League, but also institutions like the Black Church, which he severely distanced himself from upon becoming an atheist agnostic. And yet here he was, his sights set on the most powerful black man of that era from a position of what he considered to be grounded reason. Stating as a challenge to Washington's philosophy that if black people were to acquire trade skills and property, that their issues would go away rather than constantly stating their issues and grievances. He noted that in Virginia, North Carolina and South Carolina, though black people were 40% of the population, they received only 14% of school funding. And he asked if it wasn't evident that black children were being deprived of a fair chance in life. He didn't think that the reason this happened was because their fathers were so stupid as to allow it with their votes, and he therefore criticised Washington for depicting the agitation for the ballot as unwise. If you want my honest opinion on Booker T. Washington, I wouldn't consider myself a fan of his, but I am sympathetic in the sense that he was basically behind enemy lines. He was based in the Jim Crow South, and that greatly informed a lot of his conservative views especially in regards to direct protests that many in the North took issues with, and somebody like Harrison also regarded as being very subservient. And as if to cement his opinions, Harrison proclaimed also in the same letter, I don't care a damn what Booker Washington thinks. This is what I think, and I have a right to think. 
through a combination of connections and political influence, which included prominent black Republican Charles W. Anderson and New York postmaster Edward M. Morgan. After four years of service, Harrison would lose his job at the post office, and that would be the only source of stable income he would have had in his life, and for the rest of it, he would have spent it in poverty. After being struck from the post office, Harrison took up engagement with the single tax market and was an advocate of Georgia's economic philosophy, which he believed was the same thing as socialism. He began working fully with the Socialist Party in 1911 and was advocating for Eugene Debs' presidency in 1912. He lectured widely against capitalism and also founded the Coloured Socialist Club, which was the Socialist Party's first effort at trying to reach African-Americans. But Harrison did find himself stymied and blocked by the right-wing end of the Socialist Party due to their own racism and their positions on immigrants coming from Asia. Harrison felt that it was the duty of the socialists in order to reach out to African-Americans because they made up the bulk of the proletariat, the bulk of the people who really needed that sort of assistance and that sort of work. And he moved to the left of the Socialist Party and was part of the IWW, which is now the longest-running international labour union, as they've been around since 1905. He was a very prominent speaker, one of the few black speakers alongside Ben Fletcher, and he was there alongside more notable names like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Big Bill Haywood, and Carlo Tresco, and spoke at the 1913 Patterson Silk Strike, in which there was demand for an eight-hour day in working conditions and lasted for five months. He supported their advocacy of direct action and he even commended the Brotherhood of Timber Workers in terms of their efforts within the Deep South. But despite this, Harrison found that um, his efforts to speak were being restricted by the party itself and he found himself expelled from the party in 1912. The leader of the Socialist Party of New York, Morris Hillquilt, who was a big figure on the right, began restricting Harrison's activities. And Harrison came to the conclusion that the white socialists always put the white race first and class after, which looking back on it, is maybe something that people down the line probably should have heeded. He was suspended for three months after later telling the NY Executive Committee to go chase itself. And before his suspension was up after those three months, he left in 1918. After exiting the Socialist Party, he found himself doing work with the free thought and anarchist influenced modern school movement which was inspired by the work of Francisco Ferrer he established his own radical forum 
and he gave lectures on a wide range of subjects, including birth control, evolution, dismissing myths regarding people like Abraham Lincoln, that it was he who freed the slaves when his motivations were entirely otherwise. And of course, the racial aspects of World War One itself, which Harrison stated that the war came about as a result of European powers wanting control of African land and African labour. But because of the war itself, these same Europeans would find that their jobs were much more difficult to do in terms of that. It was around that same year that Harrison then founded the Liberty League, as well as the newspaper The Voice, which, thinking about it, is actually kind of a funny coincidence that it shares the name with the Black Weekly newspaper The Voice, which is the only paper of its kind in the UK, with the subheading, A Newspaper for the New Negro. Now, the concept of the New Negro is tied to that of the Harlem Renaissance, in part due to the big migrations from the Deep South to the Midwest in places like Chicago and also to parts of New York. And in Harrison's words, the new Negro was somebody who was not begging or asking for representation, but demanding it, and that they would rather have a say and a choice in regards to who represents them rather than having their figures picked for them. He would be race conscious, not just in terms of the machinations of race as a concept and ideology, but also take pride and have a knowledge of where he comes from. Harrison was a very, very big proponent of reading and wanted people to keep themselves informed on what was going on in the world of science and history and engineering, but also in current affairs. He intended for the magazine to foster an international consciousness, informing people of the development in the rest of the globe, but always keeping one eye on imperialism and the atrocities that were happening in its name. The new Negro, according to him, would not be ever willing to compromise like the old conservative crowd, and that they wanted equal justice before the law and equal opportunity and that they were against the war, politically independent and internationalist. That same year, Harrison, alongside Boston-based activist and newspaper editor William Monroe Trotter, who was also very much a direct action radical, who was very, very critical and was an early opponent of Booker T. Washington, they came together to set up the Negro American Liberty Congress in which they went directly to the base of Congress itself and put forth demands for anti-lynching legislation as well as dis as well as you know fighting against discrimination and segregation in America this approach was very, very different to that of the NAACP, who weren't making such demands. They would go out and protest, but they were trying to go at it at a slightly slower pace compared to that of Harrison and Trotter, 
who were both more so uncompromising. Harrison played a very, very important role in Marcus Garvey's life and the UNIA's rise, going as far to claim that all the best ideas that the UNIA had had originally come from him and the Liberty League, which even includes the UNIA's flag of red, black, and green, which Harrison claims they got from the Liberty League's flag of black, brown, and yellow. See, the red, black, and green flag, according to Marcus Garvey, is meant to represent the colour of the people, the blood that unites them, and the abundance of natural wealth in Africa. Whereas Harrison, his black, brown, and, you know, the Liberty League's flag of black, brown, and yellow represented the various shades of colour of the, of the Negro in America, as well as people worldwide. Whether you think Garvey ripped it off or he didn't, you be the judge. But I think that's a very interesting little fact there. See, Garvey, while he was studying in London and was doing editorial work, was doing a lot of reading in the British Museum and came across Booker T. Washington's book, Up From Slavery, and he'd sought to establish the kind of industrial trade school that Booker T himself had done. He returned to Jamaica in 1914, where he established the UNIA and was able to secure some funding from the white elite in Jamaica, which, yes, that means that Marcus Garvey's UNIA at one point did have some white membership, but the issue came from the fact that people felt that he had skipped over the brown middle class in Jamaica and was considered excessively harsh toward the black poor in Jamaica. For him, he felt that they didn't have any kind of race consciousness that was willing to support him and his efforts. And so because of that, he decided to go and take himself up and move to America, which he thought would better secure his funds. Although, unfortunately, he had much of the same result. He originally hoped he would get there in time to meet Booker T. Washington because they did have brief correspondence, but Booker died in 1915. So he was planning to return in the spring of 1917 when he became associated with an old friend of his, um, chair, no, assistant secretary, and also advocate for Jamaican sovereignty in Jamaica, Wilfred Adolphus Domingo, otherwise known as W.A. Domingo, and Hubert Harrison. Both of them took to supporting Garvey out of generosity as he was living in poverty and didn't have a place to stay. And also, Garvey, as a result of being impressed by Harrison's lecturing skills at the inaugural June 12th meeting of the Liberty League, decided to become a member and attended some of the early meetings. At those meetings, Harrison would advise members to go to the UNIA meetings and vice versa. But... Once the UNIA's membership and notoriety 
skyrocketed. It seemed as if Garvey didn't want anything to do with the league afterwards. And this was despite Harrison's generosity to introduce him to his audience. It also seemed as if that Garvey was arranging his meetings closer and closer to the time Harrison was arranging his, so therefore the two would clash. The Liberty League itself had a very, very diverse membership, not just in terms of occupations. You had Pullman Porters and Turnies and even a Democratic Party leader, but also in terms of location with where they came from. Some were native-born African-Americans, some were from Africa itself, some were from the Caribbean. And alongside Garvey, you had notable members like Cyril Briggs, who was the founder of the African Blood Brotherhood. You had um, AME Mount Zion pastor and founder Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who had a legacy of protest in his own right coming up through the church and was a founder of the National Urban League and active within the NAACP, as well as Madam C.J. Walker, the first female self-made millionaire who sold beauty products to cater to black women's needs and was also a philanthropist. Some of the members of the Liberty League were also investors in The Voice, which often had trouble not just due to Harrison's handling of money, but also because the black elite within New York were not willing to donate or invest in the paper. Many of the former Liberty League members would soon move on to becoming members within the UNIA, which played a very, very big part into how it became successful. Now, Garvey initially, like Booker T. Washington, believed in abstaining from politics altogether and advised his followers to assume politics as a means of social improvement. But over time, he came to emphasize not just the importance of politics, but also building of businesses in the black community and investing in his black star line. It's these sort of characteristics that defined these men, both as individuals, but also in terms of how they had their similarities as well. Harrison was very direct and unsparing in his analysis, and he was primarily an intellectual who was very, very staunchly anti-capitalist, whereas Garvey was very pro-capitalist and a believer in empire, which were the two which were two dominant ideologies of the time, both during and after World War One. He appealed more so to people's emotions, stirring up the hearts of his followers to believe not just in him, but also in themselves. And Garvey was also more prone to judge a person by their material worth and material possessions, which Harrison disagreed with. Harrison's militant militant stances also arguably alienated him from some of the membership in the Liberty League, who felt that such a path would be more difficult to tread and would get in the way of their ambitions of political power. His independence made it seem really difficult for them to see this as any kind of money-making opportunity, 
But in Garvey's UNIA, there was more of a chance, despite the fact that according to Barbados-born activist Richard B. Moore, some of the members in the UNIA didn't even consider Garvey a radical at all. Charles C. Seifer and Domingo, who developed his own import business, were among some of the first members to leave the league. And according to postal worker Ed- Edgar Gray, it was Domingo who actually turned Garvey away from Harrison's direction and influenced him in terms of going down a more entrepreneurial direction. Also, according to Harrison, Seifer was the one who developed the idea for Garvey's Black Star Line enterprise. He stated that the Black Star Line was an idea which Garvey boldly took from Seifer, one of the original members of the Liberty League. Now, just to take a break quickly from this story, I understand that this last section may seem quite a shock to people, considering Marcus Garvey's still enduring importance and stature in regards to black nationalism and pan-Africanism. But in the UNIA founding documents, one of its stated aims included um, civilizing the backwards tribes of Africa and to increase the continent's imperial power. Garvey held the same view as um, black nationalists of the 19th century, like Alexander Crummel and Martin Delaney, who was recognized as the first black nationalist, that um, you could argue they saw the continent through a very European genteel lens and that Africa needed to be redeemed so that it could be an equal or superior power to that of Europe, that its people needed to be taught the ways of the Bible and respectable manners and decency, which, if that sounds very eerily similar to the same rhetoric as the colonialists they were supposed to be fighting against, it does, it does. But I feel it's important that I had to state this because it is true and I would rather be honest with with you as listeners than try to hide it, especially considering some of the later events that would happen to Marcus Garvey down the line. Harrison, it should be also mentioned, took a decidedly more humble approach in that he didn't think Africa was this child who needed to be taught some strict lessons and be disciplined, rather that it was Africa who needed to teach them because there were certain things as being African-Americans that they weren't privy to or they understood. Africa was a teacher that people needed to learn from. And this stemmed from the fact that Harrison was also a huge bibliophile who shared books with and discussed African history with the historian and archivist Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, whose research and collection of more than 5,000 books, 3,000 manuscripts, 2,000 etchings and paintings brought light to the contributions and efforts made by African and African Latino people. Harrison, as I mentioned before, was born in Puerto Rico, a very interesting man in his own right. Harrison 
became the head editor of the Negro World newspaper in 1920 after the collapse of the Liberty League, although he stated that he would not become a full member. But he later broke with Garvey and the UNIA in 1922-23 after critiquing what he felt that Garvey was very prone to exaggerating the organization's successes, misused funds, and was giving out shares willy-nilly in the shipping branch. And also, due to his own efforts in terms of trying to establish an empire in Liberia. In of the same year, when Harrison became editor for the Negro World, there was a month-long UNIA convention called the First International Convention of Negro Peoples of the World in, from, in August of 1920. Harrison wrote in his diary that to him, although the opening ceremony was a success and 15,000 people attended the event that was in Madison Square Garden, he felt that Garvey sank into rhodomondates and was blabbering on about ordering white nations to get out of here meaning africa and that he made himself look like a total ass he considered him a joke as a speaker and that he said that he looked like a dog he contrasted him to james hood eason who was an ame zion preacher minister from philadelphia who proved himself to be a very good orator, and Eason would increasingly be considered a serious rival to Garvey later on down the line. Harrison also stated that the issue he had with the convention was the fact that most of the delegates were from the West Indies, and many of them were simply residents of New York, who Garvey called in to pose as delegates sent in from the West Indies and Africa. And when he started blabbering on about funding and money, some of those people started turning and leaving the event. So he felt that he made a very big pig's ear of the whole event that was meant to be a very decisive moment. When Garvey was sentenced and found guilty of mail fraud, on June the 21st, 1923, he wrote in his diary, Today, Marcus Garvey was sentenced by Mr. Justice Mack to five years in a federal prison for using the mails to defraud his fellow men of the Negro race. See, around that time, the walls were closing in on Garvey, as as well as being accused of mail fraud, the news broke out that he had went to Atlanta to have a sit-down meeting with... Um, Edward Young Clark, who was the head of the Ku Klux Klan's Atlanta division. He was desperate in terms of trying to look for supporters. And he shared some of the UNIA texts regarding their Back to Africa movement with those in the KKK. Garvey also at one point infamously thanked them for quote-unquote lynching race consciousness into the Negro community. Um, Harrison 
also wrote a piece on Garvey and the trial itself in the Associated Negro Press, in which he observed that it might have been expected since all through his public career, Garvey had loved the limelight. He loved to be the centre of everything. He has always wanted to be the whole cheese and the jury took him on at his own estimate. He also made this very astute point regarding the dangers of fanatical following, fully aware of the depth of feeling that Garvey's followers had for him, in which he stated as follows. To that type of West Indian peasant from the Ho Handel and Cowtail Brigade, to whom Garvey is a god, and whose intolerant fanaticism may still comprise the thousands of intelligent and respectable West Indians in the United States. These people still believe that Garvey never did the crooked thing in his life. To them, the receipts of the poor people for passage money, the advertisements in the Negro world of sailings of the Phyllis Wheatley, put off month by month from January to November 1921. The printed lies telling of 20,000 delegates to a convention in which anyone who could count would find only a hundred. To them, these facts didn't exist, and they go about threatening to shoot even the lawyer whom Garvey discharged, as if Cornelius W. McDougald fired himself to injure Garvey, and making dangerous statements which, if the authorities choose to notice them, will cause the closing of Liberty Hall and the suppression of Garvey's African Legion as danger to domestic tranquility. He did believe, however, that Garvey's program did have merit due to the belief that, you know, it was based in not trying to go to the white race for help to look for leadership or a program. And, but he did maintain that he believed that the program was from the Liberty League from which Garvey appropriated every feature that was worthwhile in his movement. Before his death, Harrison tried to establish the International Coloured Unity League, the ICLU, urging black people to develop a race consciousness in defence of oppression and violence, and to use that consciousness to organise and respond to pressures as a group. His aim was to unite the power of the Negro demanding proper representation in Congress and in state and municipal governing bodies, and to utilize the balance of voting powers held by Negroes in doubtful states such as Ohio and Illinois, irrespective of previous party affiliations. For him, this Congress would be defined on the lines of three parts, political, economical, and social and foresaw that through collective effort to make the race man's dollar as powerful as the white man's and use it to secure better well-being, security and financial independence. He exhibited a surprising change of heart towards the church, believing that they were a mighty instrument towards race betterment and that the social programs through the ICLU could be used towards making scholarships for coloured youth and they would be based in the best northern schools and the abrogation of restricted laws and injustices against Negroes in the United States. Although, sadly, many of these aims wouldn't come to fruition, as Harrison died on the operating table whilst getting treated for his appendicitis. He was only 44 years of age. It seems as if he was making progress at first after the operation, but then his health took a turn for the worst. His daughter Ida said that the family was told that he had peritonitis, 
which she suspected maybe had been related to tuberculosis, they were told by a private doctor. He was memorialized by friends like Autor Alfonso Schomburg, who simply stated that he was ahead of his time, and associates and even certain activists who he had strong disagreements with, like A. Philip Randolph, described him as our comrade and co-fighter for race justice, who had made an enduring and valuable contribution to the life of the Negro of New York in particular, and the world in general. Due to the poverty that he spent much of his life in, Harrison was buried in an unmarked grave in the Bronx. But thankfully, in recent times, a new generation of people came to discover his words and his work, one of them including the biographer Jeffrey Perry, who I mentioned earlier. And a new grave was placed there in deserving of the giant from his era that quotes the poet and composer and one-time member of the Liberty League, Andy Razaf, whose work was printed in Harrison's Voice newspaper. The words on the marker are as follows. Speaker, editor, sage, what a change thy work hath wrought. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to check the podcast's previous episodes, please look through, you know, wherever you look for your podcast, be it Spotify, Podbay, and wherever else. Thank you for listening. Look into Hubert Harrison. I would highly recommend you check out the two-volume biographies written about him, as well as his writings in When Africa Awakes. Till next time, everybody. Thank you for listening.
Hello listeners, this is Odai speaking. I just thought I would add something, um, a little supplementary to the episode I've done on Hubert Harrison, where you've heard me talk about the man, but I think it would be better set if I gave you a sense of his writing, because he had a very distinctive, very clear, very insightful voice that has a lot of things I would consider relevant to today, but also the surprise that this was nearly 90, 100 years ago. And um, the foresight on his path is something that's not to be uh, undermined. So I'll be reading three, three essays. So I'll be starting with Education and the Race, which he wrote in August 1920 from his book When Africa Awakes and is also part of the Hubert Harrison reader done by Jeffrey B. Perry. It starts as follows. In the dark days of Russia, when the iron heel of Tsarist despotism was heaviest on the necks of the people, those who wished to rule decreed that the people should remain ignorant. Loyalty to interests that were opposed to theirs was the prevailing public sentiment of the masses. In vain did the pioneers of freedom for the masses perish under the Nauten rigors of Siberia. They sacrificed to move the masses, but the masses strong in their love for liberty lacked the head to guide the moving feet to any issue. It was then that Leo Tolstoy and the other intelligentsia began to carry knowledge to the masses. Not only in the province of Tula, but in every large city, young men of university experience would assemble in secret classes of instruction teaching them to read, to write, to know, to think, and to love knowledge. Most of this work was underground at first, but it took. Thousands of educated persons gave themselves to this work, without pay. Their only hope of reward lay in the future effectiveness of an instructed mass movement. What were the results? As knowledge spread, enthusiasm backed by brains. The Russian Revolution began to be sure of itself. The working men of the city studied the thing that they were up against, gauged their own weakness and strength as well as their opponents. The despotism of the Tsar could not provoke them to a mass movement before they were ready and had the means, and when at last they moved, they swept not only the Tsar's regime, but the whole exploiting system upon which it stood into utter oblivion. What does this mean to the Negro of the Western world? It may mean much or little, that depends on him. If other men's experiences have value for the new Negro manhood movement, it will seek now to profit by them and to bottom the new fervour of faith in itself with the solid support of knowledge. The chains snap from the limb of the young giant as he rises, stretches himself and sits up to take notice. But let him, for his future's sake, insist on taking notice. To drop the figure of speech, we Negroes who have shown our manhood must back it in by our mind. This world at present is a white man's world, even in Africa. We, being what we are, want to shake loose the chains of his control from our corner of it. We must either accept his domination and our inferiority, or we must contend against it. But we go up to win, and whether we carry on that contest with ballots, bullets, or business, we cannot win from the white man unless we know at least as much as the white man knows. For after all, knowledge is power. But that isn't all. What kind of knowledge is it that enables white men to rule black men's lands? Is it the knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, philosophy or literature? It isn't. It is the knowledge of explosives and deadly compounds. That is chemistry. 
is the knowledge which can build ships, bridges, railroads and factories. That is engineering. It is the knowledge which harnesses the visible and invisible forces of the earth, air and air and water. That is science, modern science. And that is what the new Negro must enlist upon his side. Let us, like the Japanese, become a race of knowledge getters, preserving our racial soul, but digesting into it all that we can glean or grasp, so that when Israel goes up out of bondage, he will be skilled in all the learning of the Egyptians and competent to control his destiny. Those who have knowledge must come down from their Sinai's and give it to the common people. Theirs is the great duty to simplify and make clear, to light the lamps of knowledge that the eyes of their race may see, that the feet of their people may not stumble. This is the task of the talented tenth. To the masses of our people we say, read, get the reading habit, spend your spare time not so much training the feet to dance as in training the head to think. And at the very outset draw the line between books of opinion and books of information. Saturate your mind with the latter and you will be forming your own opinions, which will be worth ten times more to you than the opinions of the greatest minds on earth. Go to school whenever you can. If you can't go in the day, go at night. But remember always that the best college is that on your bookshelf. The best education is that on the inside of your own head. For in this workaday world, people ask first, not where were you educated, but what do you know? And next, what can you do with it? And if we of the Negro race can master modern knowledge, the kind that counts, we will be able to win for ourselves the priceless gifts of freedom and power. And we will be able to hold them against the world. Right, listeners. Now, the second piece is from a diary entry from May of the same year. So slightly earlier. This is a diary entry. And from when um, Harrison was the editor of The Negro World, which was the paper for, for Marcus Garvey's UNIA, United Negro Improvement Association. But he wasn't a member. And in this entry, he um, offers some very critical opinions of the man and his abilities as a, as a leader. Harrison wasn't the only one at the time, but um, this is somebody who, you know, he inspired Garvey. They both worked back and forth in terms of like he urged his Liberty League members to take part in the UNIA's meetings and vice versa. And so I thought, yes, this would be, this would be worth reading. But also I think as, uh, it might, listeners, you might get a kick out of this considering, as I said, how much of a, a quote unquote hater Hubert Harrison was. He does also preface that, um, in the edition of the readership that, um, a man by the name of Reverend E. Ethelred Brown also had known Garvey from when he was in Jamaica and made similar comments. But um, let's see what Harrison had to say. So May 24th, 1920. It does not now appear that the commission to Liberia will be allowed to materialize. I've been knocking at the door of the State Department for the past two months, but no passport have been forthcoming. The issue of the Negro world for you know, it says date not given, presumably March 10th, will furnish a reason. In that issue will be found an insane collection of bombastic rantings as to what the commission would do in Liberia. 
delivered in Liberty Hall by pin-headed preachers and other ignorant howlers. All before the Reverend Mr. James W. H. Eason, Vice Bruce, who had given up his chance on the doctor's advice, and I had got our passports. When Hudson Price, the new, quote, in brackets, third editor, was correcting the proofs at the printers and came across this senseless slobber, he called up Mr. Garvey on the phone and pointed out to him that if the stuff went in, his delegates would hardly be able to get their passports. Garvey replied that he had heard it all spoken and had read it in type and that in his opinion it was good propaganda and should go in. So it went in. In the meanwhile, as I have been credibly informed, Sam Duncan, who has two old scores to pay off and who is a mean, dirty S of B, has written secretly to the State Department and set them on the trail just as he had previously done to the governors of the various British West Indian islands resulting in the outlawing of the Negro world in those islands. So there will be no passports for us, and it is mainly due to Marcus Garvey's prime defect, bombastic blabbering. He talks too much and too foolishly. And of Garvey's character, he had to say this. The last remarks may fittingly introduce a general estimate of Mr. Garvey's character and abilities. When we had organised the Liberty League, Garvey used to attend our meetings at the same time he began to organise a branch of the Jamaica Improvement Association, which finally blossomed out into the UNIA and ACL, the African Communities League. Everything that I did, he copied, yet I was generous enough to introduce him to my audiences in New York at the Bethel meeting on the night of May, actually June, the 12th, 1917, and also at my lecture forum in Lafayette Hall, as also in Brooklyn later. Sometimes, indeed, I would close my meeting in Lafayette Hall earlier than usual and ask my audience to go down to give him a crowd. Yet when Garvey had gone up in the wild and the UNIA was going strong, never a reciprocal courtesy was forthcoming from him. Knowing that my work which had failed had laid the foundation for his success, I refrained from burdening his movement with my presence. Edgar Gray has since told me that he again and again asked Garvey to call me in and utilise my abilities in counsel and service. But he would always refuse with the groundless excuse that Harrison has his own propaganda and that he was dangerous, whereas at that time I had no propaganda of any sort except race first and was devoting my time to purely educational lectures outdoors and indoors. The first big defect, then, in Mr. Garvey's makeup is a defect in the size of his soul. He is spiritually as well as intellectually a little man. That is why he doesn't want around him men who are of larger girth either way. Or if he gets them, he does not utilise them in any way which would aid, amplify or modify his chaotic plans and notions. If he can use them as his hired bravos, then so far so good. Today, most Negroes in and out of the UNIA who are interested in its work assume that the men of abilities like Edward Smith Green and William H. Ferris and myself, who are with Mr. Garvey, are somehow permitted to lend the aid of their knowledge and abilities to the work in hand. But it isn't so at all. Ferris is a mere pseudo-intellectual flunky with no more personality than a painted stick. I am only the editor of the Negro World and I'm in no way connected with either the UNIA, the BSL, Black Star Line, or the NFC, except as a dues-paying member of the first. Smith Green has had to chafe against being overreached, browbeaten, and superseded in his own department, and right now, 
Garvey is trying to make a scapegoat of him by a blanket insinuation of malversation to cobble up the snarled results of his own autocratic interference. Since January 1st, there has been but one meeting of the Board of Directors, that of last Monday the 17th of May. Mr Garvey, I learnt from Smith Green, Johnson, Traffic and, pa and Passenger Agent, Cyril Henry and others, has paid money on ships, published the news acquisitions, and then called the board to inform them that he had done this and so. His ignorance of ships and shipping matters has resulted in his paying out tens of thousands of dollars unnecessarily, and he has been victimised again and again by the white man from whom ships and ships accessories were bought. In the midst of all this, he lies to the people malignantly, bragging about impossible things while not owning the ships outright. The Yarmouth is at present lying at her pier at a cost, I have been told, of $150 a day, while her black captain has been relieved of his command, although still in the company's service and a white captain has been assigned to command her. So, yes, listeners, as you could see, he, he wasn't one to mince his words of people, whether they were his political opponents or they were his, his allies. Now, I think I will read one more from Mr. Harrison and something a little bit different, as he also wrote a lot of literary criticism. He wrote book reviews. He was a very wide-ranging writer. And one aspect he actually did cover was he talked about the theatre, which was interesting. So here is a, an article from him called The Negro Actor on Broadway, Interpretation by a Negro Critic, which came about from a, a social evening he had where he called out a bill called the Clean Books Bill which was a successful battle, which he points out and said that it was a piece of legislation designed to terrorise publishers and writers of books. And when he brought that up, it became, it turned into a very serious discussion about the theatre. And this is him elaborating his ideas from that discussion, which included people like Carl Van Vechten, Henry L. Mencken, um, Ludwig Lewishon and Burton Rasko, and he uses, for examples, um, two plays that were done in the Ethiopian art theatre, Willis Richardson's The Chip Woman's Fortune and Oscar Wilde's Salome. So, here we go. The Ethiopian art theatre, which is a company of actors and not a playhouse, has come and gone, having furnished in the interim a seven-day sensation for sophisticated Broadway. Two plays which they presented, I speak only of those which I saw, were The Chipwoman's Fortune and Oscar Wilde's Salome, and critical opinion was divided only on the merits of the latter. Concerning the former, it is agreed that the Negro actors achieved as notable a success this season as Charles Gilpin did in The Emperor Jones. A brief estimate of the relative merits of both plays by a writer of the race to which the players belong may therefore be in order at this time. Of general human and artistic grounds, a company of Negro actors on Broadway is simply a company of actors, and the racial identity of the performers would seem to have no value in the estimate of their work, provided that they were at home in the English language and the conventions of the American stage. And yet, this is but reasoning in vacuo. 
The fact remains that a company of Negro actors on Broadway is an unusual phenomenon. A special fact which has to be explained on special grounds that must take into consideration the expectations of the world of white critics, playgoers and the public at large in the light of their previous contact with Negro actors in the legitimate drama. Not only is the player projected of life and life's forces onto the stage, but so also are the opinions, judgments and the other reactions of human minds in regard to the play and the players. In short then, these Negro actors and their acting are new things which must justify themselves. From that point of view, we must face this first question. What was the contribution, the new and unique thing, which these players contributed to Broadway? On the face of it, it should seem that this must consist in something which Broadway as such did not have. And that is precisely the reason why we are justified in ranking their production of the Chipwoman's fortune higher than that of Salome. For the former is a Negro play conceived by a Negro playwright, presenting a characteristic Negro situation with a distinct racial atmosphere and background. All the elements from which it draws its significance and value are Negro elements. Salome, however one may like it as dramatic form, is distinctively a hothouse product. It deals with hothouse passions, situations and characters. It is a highly sophisticated product of a spiritual boulevardier. Its atmosphere is strongly painted with the heavy odours of that spiritual and artistic miasma which the French, who first experimented along that line, describe as decadent. It is not necessary to argue that Negro actors are either temperamental or artistically unable to present such an exotic, such an exotic as capably as white actors. One needs merely insist that even if they had done it better, their achievement would still not be as valuable a contribution to Broadway as the chipwoman's fortune, for the reasons already given. It must be obvious that any group of workers can do more and better work on their own ground of materials native to their experience than they can on alien grounds of alien materials. So much for the argument on general critical grounds, let us see whether reference to the matters of detail will furnish confirmations. As dramatic material, the chipwoman's fortune was surprisingly thin, barely an incident in the daily life of a Negro worker's family which was living beyond its means. The graphophone hadn't been paid for and the men were coming to cart it back to the store. The rest of the story is omitted because it must be already well known to those for whom alone this critique can have any value or importance. It was the acting and the acting only that gave this thin, feeble theme life, death and poignancy. It was here that Miss Evelyn Prayer revealed herself as an actress of power, originality and imagination. It is true that the art of acting doesn't merely or even mainly consist in the reading of one's lines, as so many Philistines suppose. Yet the mere reading of her lines was a revelation of the range and reach of that particular element of Miss Pereira's art, such as we haven't had since the palmy days of Helena Majeska and Eleanor Deuce. It was a study in tonality and nuances that made it one of the memorable achievements of the American stage. But it was at that point of presentation that lies midway between what we call business and body control that this Negro girl lifted Broadway's art of two-dimensional acting into the body, breadth and depth of three dimensions. Without moving from the chair to which she was, in character, tied by sickness, she embodied all that there was of the whimsical, the humorous, the sordid, pathetic and tragic in the character and its surroundings and circumstances. What she did as art will never escape from the memory of those who have seen it.
The acting of Sidney Kirkpatrick as the impernicious husband was all that was set down in the written play. It was adequate, but no more. On the other hand, the excellence of Miss Laura Bowman's rendition of the old chipwoman is apt to be overlooked by many who saw it. I've known Miss Bowman for years, and I'm quite familiar with her voice and movements, yet, because I've neglected to look at the programme, it was not until after the play that I realised that it was she who had played the title role, and that only after I had been told so, I gave The Undoctored Incident as an indication of the power of illusion, which she put into her acting. During all my years as a theatre-goer, this has happened to me only twice, and it's somewhat significant that the only other case was that of another Negro actress. Miss Cleo Diamond. Altogether, the chipwoman's fortune was great as art and high in interpretive quality. It made Broadway realise the novel possibilities that lie in Negro life apart from its mountbank moments, and it suggested that no white actors anywhere can equal Negro actors in the interpretation of Negro life. If Broadway can take these two lessons to heart, it will have been splendidly benefited. In their rendition of Salome, the Negro players had a difficult piece of interpretation to do. It's very much to their credit that they did it in such a way as to achieve a marked measure of commendation. But when I saw the play, it suffered from poor and imperfect lighting, and because of this, the work of Kirkpatrick as Herod was robbed of its maximum histronic effect. But apart from this interpretation of the part was markedly uneven. In the purely emotional passages, his resonant voice and compelling personality stood him in great steed. But he failed to intellectualise it when Herod, faced with the sadistic determination of Salome, realised that he had been trapped by his promise and endeavoured to secure from her a cancellation of his kingly word. The words of the Judean Tetrarch implied cajolery, bribery and persuasion. But the actor pulled them forth in a torrential stream of turgid and passionate appeal that was inconsistent with the requirements of the situation. According to the text, Herod was delicately jingled, but not so drunk that he couldn't rise to the intellectual needs of, the, of that crisis, since he could consistently disguise his motives from keeping John the Baptist alive against the justified demands of Herodias. Their interpretation at this point was therefore a cardinal error in Mr. Kirkpatrick's understanding of the requirements of the case. Miss Bowman's Herodias was a very effective rendering of the character. She kept her dynamis well in hand when it would have been very easy to tear her passion to tatters. With a skilful economy of means, she gave a well-rounded presentation of the dissolute and ambitious queen at that moment in her life when her sordid successes in profligacy had turned to dead sea fruit on her lips. Miss Pris Salome was decidedly not as good as her rendering of the negro wife and the chipwoman's fortune. Anyone who essays to play the part of the daughter of Herodias must be able to dance convincingly, and the most kindly critic cannot concede that Miss Prayer could. For the rest, she threw off flashes of genius here and there that only served to illuminate the fact that the part was not a perfect fit. Yet it must be said that the marvel of her voice, especially when seducing the soldier from his duty, made amends for much. And when she let herself go in the perverted passion for John the Baptist, she lifted Wilde's conception to the height of tense reality. Neither in the character of John nor in the other minor characters was there any particular scope for acting, but that was due to the author's dramatic form rather than to any defect on the part of the actors, who were cast for those parts. On the whole, then, their presentation of Salome was good rather than great, 
And I still insist, as I said to Theodore Dreiser, that there are at least 10 white companies on Broadway that could do it as well. But not one of them, in my opinion, could come near to the flawless perfection of the chipwoman's fortune. In this dramatic gem, rather than in the more ambitious piece de resistance, the Negro actors of the Ethiopian art theatre justified to the full their temporary presence on Broadway. And if white producers want to be fair to the histronic gifts of the American Negro, if they wish to give Broadway a genuine opportunity to judge on the dramatic richness of Negro life and the possibility of the enrichment of the resources of the American stage from the source, they will turn to pieces like The Chipwoman's Fortune and Ridgely Torrance's Granny Maomi and The Rider of Dreams. It is here that they will find the basis and justification for a real Negro theatre. And that's it. Those are all the essays read. If you would like to check out more of Harrison, I would say you could read When Africa Awakes, or I would also recommend the two-volume biographies on Hubert Harrison done by the late Jeffrey B. Perry, who did a lot of work in regards to Harrison. He worked on the book for 40 years. He got assistance from the family as well. And he even archived a lot of the writings that Harrison had done from from then. And it's an incredible job that he did. So there you go, listeners. That's this episode for Black History Month. And till next time, thank you for listening.
And to change the tone a bit, we shall go to the last article he wrote, which is about Jamaican poet Claude McKay. And it's written in the spring, it's a review of Spring in New Hampshire and other poems in Negro World of May 21st, 1921. And it's written as follows. The island of Jamaica has given us three Negroes who along different lines have risen into permanent prominence. Marcus Garvey, president of the Black Star Line and head of the most widely discussed movement in modern Negrodom. Joel A. Rogers, author of two books which stand without a peer in the output of Negro writing, From Superman to Man and As Nature Leads. And Claude McKay, whose proud title to distinction consists of two simple words, The Poet. Mr. McKay began to write poetry before he left Jamaica, where he published three volumes of verse. Unfortunately for us, his interest in his own fame is so slim that he did not take the trouble to preserve any copies of these earlier volumes, and we are left to speculate as to their quality. Since he came to America, Mr. McKay has worked at various jobs, depending firstly on his hands to earn a living for himself. While on one of these jobs, he was discovered by Pearson's Magazine, and Max Eastman's Liberator, of which he is at present associate editor. He has come to the fore by sheer virtue of the spiritual quality of poetic ability which no hardships could suppress. Without any aid from Negro editors or publications, he made his way because white people who noted his gifts were eager to give him a chance, while Negro editors, as usual, were either too blind to see or too mean-spirited to proclaim them to the world. His manly, stirring poem, If We Must Die, first appeared in a white publication from which it was elevated to the dignity of a place in the congressional record. It was then that the Negro reading public discovered for him for themselves without any age from their top lofty mentors who are always ready to bring forward young writers after they have been proclaimed by white critics. Mr McKay's slim little volume, Spring in New Hampshire and Other Poems, which was published last year in London, is now before us. It reveals the author as a poet with fine and delicate technique, and a curiously cultivated restraint. It is equally free from jingling and splurging, and from the flaring fantoles of the free-verse comedians who now hold the centre of the stage in that garish masquerade entitled The New Poetry. The genuine breath of the topics is felt in most of these poems, yet it seldom blows tornado blasts. The fine artistic feeling of the poet controls and tempers its to it to fine effects. Take, for instance, the last ten lines of North and South. A breath of idleness is upon the air, that casts a subtle spell upon things, and love and mating time are everywhere, and wander to life's commonplace clings. The fluttering hummingbird darts through the trees and dips his long beak in the big bell flowers. The leisured buzzard floats upon the breeze, riding a crescent cloud for endless hours. The sea beats softly in the emerald strands, oh sweet for dainty dreams of tropic lands. It would have been very easy to vulgarise such a theme, to indulge in what Amy Lowell calls lazy writing, and to tread the common ground of commonplace figures. Instead, we find that the word and the measure create an appropriate tone colour, or atmosphere, in which the scene is set, and the nuances make something that is finer than melody. The fourth line of the quoted portion is the golden touch of genius. Sometimes the hidden melody of his verse is so fine that those who think that poetry is compounded of jingles and junk will fail to find it. 
But there it is, just the same, like a theme of Edward Alexander McDowell's writing, waiting for the ear of beauty to find it. As in this half standard from his exoration in brackets to Ethiopia. In the east, the clouds grow crimson with the new dawn that is breaking, and its golden glory fills the western skies. Oh, my brothers, my sisters, wake, arise, for the new birth rends the old earth, and the very dead are waking. Ghosts are turned flesh, throwing off the grave's disguise, and the foolish, even children, are made wise. For the big earth groans in travail for the strong, new world in making. Oh, my brothers, dreaming for long centuries, wake from sleeping to the east, turn, turn your eyes. This will stand to the test of thinking, and that quality of thought stands out in most of Mr. McKay's work. He means something. He doesn't let the rhyme rule the thought, nor the ink guide the pen. Perhaps the most arresting poem in this volume is the one entitled The Memory of June. Its theme is too intimate for reproduction here, but it is the one in which our poet comes nearest to letting himself go. The lynching on Broadway, Harlem shadows and Harlem dancer are noteworthy presentations of familiar themes. We feel that the work of this poet should be better known. It it is high in aim, in thought, in technique and we gladly bespeak for this volume of genuine poetry, a place in the, in the affections of our folks. And there you have it. Those are three different essays from Hubert Harrison. I'd recommend you, you check out more of his, you know, check out more of his work. And also I would like to take a little bit of this time to, to pay my respects to um, one Jeffrey Perry, who spent, 40 years researching into Hubert Harrison with the aid of his family, you know, having his archives and digitizing them amongst other things as well that he did because he wanted to make sure Harrison would shine and he was somebody who deserved the full treatment. And I think he did a bang up job. Both his, the two volume biographies he did on Hubert Harrison are absolutely worth reading. So with that, Till next time, hope you've enjoyed this episode, listeners.
Hey Simon, um, this is Odai again. I'm just doing another audio recording of me reading three essays from Hubert Harrison. I just thought this would make a nice alternative to the first recording. So it will still follow the same principles and um, let me know what you decide to do with them. If you decide to mix the two or you just use the recordings but it's it's up to you it's up to you sir so i will <clears throat> i will start in a second and then do as follows hello listeners Odai here so um i just thought i'd do a little bit of reading as supplement to the episode i did on hubert harrison i thought it would be good to let the man's work speak for itself not just me talking about his life and what he did because I find him to be a very elucidating very very direct and quite a powerful writer even though they were written back in the 19 late 1910s and 1920s there's a lot that's still very very relevant I would say to now so the first one I will take up is I will read to you is the East St. Louis horror and context is needed because there was a riot in East St. Louis about this time and Harrison decided that you know considering the violence considering the violence of the race riots that were happening in July of 1917 he believed that this was the right time for black people to arm themselves in self-defense and to not stand for you know just taking just taking licks and taking a beating from the racists and lynchers this is in when africa awakes but was also printed in the voice which was the newspaper for the liberty league and was published first in july the 4th 1917 then in New Negro issue 4 in September 1919, and then finally in When Africa Wakes. So, it shall start as follows. The nation is now at war to make the world safe for democracy, but the Negro's contention in the court of public opinion is that until this nation itself is made safe for 12 million of its subjects, the Negro at least will refuse to believe in the democratic assertions of the country. The East St. Louis pogrom gives point to this contention. Here on the eve of celebration of the nation's birthday of freedom and equality, the white people who are denouncing the Germans as Huns and barbarians break loose in an orgy of unprovoked and villainous barbarism, which neither Germans nor any other civilized people have ever equaled. How can America hold up its hands in hypocritical horror at foreign barbarism while the red blood of the Negro is clinging to those hands? So long as the President and Congress of the United States remain dumb in the presence of barbarities in their own land which would tip their tongues with righteous indignation if they had been done in Belgium, Ireland or Galicia? And what are the Negroes to do? Are they expected to re-echo with enthusiasm the patriotic protestations of the boot-licking leaders whose pockets and positions testify to the power of the white man's gold? Let there be no mistake. Whatever the Negroes may be compelled by law to do and say, the resentment in their hearts will not down. Unbeknown to the white people of this land, a temper is being developed among Negroes, 
with which the American people will have to reckon. At the present moment, it takes this form. If white men are to kill unoffending Negroes, Negroes must kill white men in defense of their lives and property. This is the lesson of the East St. East Louis massacre. The press reports declare that the troops who were on duty during the most serious disturbances were ordered not to shoot. The civil and military authorities are evidently winking at the work of the mob, horrible as that was, and the Negroes of the city need not look to them for protection. They must protect themselves, and even the United States Supreme Court concedes them this right. <coughs> Sorry about that. There is, in addition, a method of retaliation which we urge upon them. It is one which will hit those white men who have the power to prevent lawlessness just where they feel it most. In the place where they keep their consciences, the pocketbook. Let every Negro in East St. Louis and the other cities where race writing occurs draw his money from the savings bank and either bank it in the other cities or in the postal savings bank. The only part of the news reports which with which we are all pleased is that which states that the property loss is already estimated at a million and a half dollars. Another reassuring feature is the one suppressed in most of the news dispatches. We refer to the evidences that the East St. Louis Negroes organized themselves during the riot and fought back under some kind of leadership. We Negroes will never know, perhaps, how many whites were killed by our enraged brothers in East St. Louis. It isn't the news policy of the white newspapers, whether friendly or unfriendly, to spread such news broadcasts. It might teach Negroes too much, but we will hope for the best. The occurrence should serve to enlarge rapidly the membership of the Liberty League of Negro Americans, which was organized to take practical steps to help our people all over the land in the protection of their lives and liberties. So now, the second piece I will read is um, an example how Harrison could be very, very scathing in his critiques, not just in terms of white racists and the government, but also, you know, other fellow black leaders in the black church as well. And in this case, we are talking about W.E.B. Du Bois, who is the pioneer of black liberalism he wrote the souls of black folk uh dark water and black reconstruction in america founder of the naacp and this piece is interesting because the context of this is um du bois was looking to try and get a captaincy in military intelligence and he wrote an editorial in the naacp's magazine a crisis called close ranks in which he urges african americans to forget their special grievances and close in their ranks to fight in world war one for the allied nations and democracy in the hope that if they prove that they are patriotic and hard-working when they come back to america they'll be regarded as heroes and that will hopefully prevent you know proving through morals that will dampen or you know ease off their racism and harrison who was a du bois man before then wrote this expose 
in saying that um, he has lost his 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 peak, his his tenure as being uh, considered a leader of the of the black community in that regard, because he he accuses him of of writing that editorial in order to get a captaincy role in military intelligence. So I shall read this and let you be the judge. But apparently Du Bois, after over the next 40 years, would regard that period of time with a mixture of bitterness and shame, as one biographer said. So here, here is what Harrison said about this. In a recent bulletin of the War Department, it was declared that justifiable grievances were producing and had produced not disloyalty, but an amount of unrest and bitterness, which even the best efforts of their leaders may not be able always to guide. This is the simple truth. The essence of the present situation lies in the fact that the people whom our white masters have recognised as our leaders, without taking the trouble to consult us, and those who by our own selection had actually attained to leadership among us are being reevaluated and in most cases rejected. The most striking instance from the latter class is Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, the editor of The Crisis. Du Bois' case is the more significant because his former services to his race has been undoubtedly of a high and courageous sort. Moreover, the act by which he has brought upon himself the stormy outburst of disapproval from his race is one which of itself would seem to merit no such stern condemnation. To properly gauge the value and merit of this disapproval, one must view it in the light of its attendant circumstances and of the situation in which it arose. Dr. Du Bois first palpably sinned in his editorial close ranks in the July number of the crisis, but this offence, apart from the trend and general tenor of the brief editorial, lies in a single sentence. Let us, while the war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. For the latter part of the sentence, there is no dissent, so far as we know. The offence lies in that part of the sentence which ends with the italicised words. It is felt by all his critics that Du Bois of all Negroes knows best that our special grievances, which the War Department Bulletin describes as justifiable, consist of lynching, segregation and disenfranchisement, and that Negroes of America cannot perceive either their lives, their manhood or their vote, which is their political life and liberties, with these things in existence. The doctor's critics feel that America cannot use the Negro people to any good effect unless they have life, liberty and manhood assured and guaranteed to them. Therefore, instead of the war for democracy making these things less necessary, it makes them more so. But, it may be asked, why should not these few words be taken merely as a slip of the pen, or a venial error in logic? Why all this hubbub? It is because the so-called leaders of the first mentioned class have already established an unsavoury reputation by advocating this same surrender of life, liberty and manhood, masking their cowardice behind the pillars of wartime sacrifice. Du Bois' statement then is believed to mark his entrance into that class and is accepted as a surrender of the principles which brought him into prominence and which alone kept him there. Later, when it was learned that Du Bois was being preened for a berth in the War Department 
as a captain assistant adjutant to major jolie spingarn the words used by him in the editorial acquired a darker more sinister significance the two things fitted too well together as a motive and self-interest for those reasons Du Bois is regarded much in the same way as a knight in the Middle Ages who had his armour stripped from him, his arms reversed and his spurs hacked off. This ruins him as an influential person among Negroes at this time, alike whether he becomes a captain or remains an editor. But the case has roots much further back than the editorial in July's crisis. Some time ago when it was learned that the crisis was being investigated by the government for an alleged seditious utterance, a great clamour went up. Although the expression of it was not open, Negroes who dared to express their thoughts seemed to think the action tantamount to a declaration that protests against lynching, segregation and disenfranchisement were outlawed by the government. But nothing was clearly understood until the conference of editors was called under the assumed auspices of Emmett Scott and Major Spingarn. Then it began to appear that these editors had not been called without a purpose. The desperate ambiguity of the language which they used in their report in the War Department Bulletin, coupled with the fact that not one of them upon his return would tell the people anything of the proceedings of the conference, all this made the Negroes feel less and less confident in them and their leadership, made them as leaders less effective instruments for the influential control of the racist state of mind. Now, Du Bois was one of the most prominent of those editors who were called. The responsibility, therefore, for a course of counsel which stresses the servile virtues of acquiescence and subservience falls squarely on his shoulders. The offer of a captaincy and Du Bois's flirtation with that offer, following on the heels of these things, seemed, even in the eyes of his associate members of the NAACP, to afford clear proof of that which was only a suspicion before, vis-à-vis that the racial resolution of the leaders had been tampered with, and that the boys has been privy to something of the sort. The connection between the successive acts of the drama, May, June, July, was too clear to admit of any interpretation other than that of deliberate, cold-blooded, purposive planning, and the connection with Spingarn seemed to suggest that personal friendship and public faith were not good and working teammates. For the sake of the larger usefulness of Dr. Du Bois, we hope he will be able to show that he can remain as editor of the crisis, but we fear that it will require a good deal of explaining, for our leaders, like Caesar's wife, must be above suspicion.